All right, today is the, uh, the first Sunday of the month. So if you're new at BC on the first and third Sundays each month, we have a uh, kids sermon, um, which is actually really good for grown-ups too, because it's when we explain the, uh, the rest of the sermon in terms and hopefully concepts that kids can understand. So it's, it's good for all of us. Um, and then on the second and fourth Sundays, and it's not today, but the kids go to another room for a, a kind of kid-focused time where they can hear a whole uh, teaching that's geared towards them, and they can do some activities together to help them kind of grow in their young faith. Um, and so, kids, today, I got some questions for you. Our sermon is about how uh, there are things of God that we need to hear again and again and again, and there are also things from God that we should learn and know so that we don't need to be taught them again and again and again. And so I want to kind of tell you more about this by asking you some questions about things your parents say to you. So, kids, what are things your parents tell you all the time? Again and again and again. What do you got, Zeke? Don't break your neck. <laughs> don't go outside of the fence. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Don't break your neck. It's also good. Pick up your socks. That's a good one. Switch the laundry. What do you guys got back there? Reese boys. Obey. Don't put your bike on the real street. You can put it on the driveway, but not the street. Yeah. Yeah, we tell our kids to pick up their clothes and to, uh, you know, eat over their plates so they don't get food all over the place. Uh, what else? What, Caitlin? Wash your hands, pick up your room. Yeah. So they, how many times have they told you these things? A bunch of times or just once? Laundry, about a million. About a million. <laughs> what do you got, Johnny? Work on the garden. Okay, I have another question for you. Do your parents ever tell you that they love you? A bunch of times. A bunch of times? Okay, what we're going to talk about in our passage today is that those are two different kinds of things, right? You want your parents to tell you again and again and again and again and again that they love you, right? You want to hear that your whole life from your dad. But hopefully, he doesn't have to keep telling you not to break your neck, right? You should just learn that and not do it, right? Or learn to ride your bike on the driveway and not on the main street. Yeah. Or not to go out of the fence, right? But you still want your parents to tell you again and again that they love you. And it's the same way with the things of God, right? There are some things that we should just learn and know and grow in so that we can teach other people. But there are other things like the good news of the gospel that we want to hear again and again and again, and we need to hear again and again and again. And so that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. And so if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's some underneath the rows. And this morning's passage in those Bibles is on page 1003. And if you don't have a Bible of your own and you use one of those, feel free to take it with you when you leave, uh, if you would like to. Again, that was page 1003. We're going to be reading Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to start in verses 11 and read through chapter 6, verse 3. About this... 
we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder from your word this morning that we are called to go on to maturity. That we're called to strive towards that and and work towards that and labor towards that. And, And also, we thank you for the reminder that we only do that if you permit. And so, God, we pray today that because of your grace and mercy and love that you have for us and that you've shown us so richly in Christ that you would enable us together to study your word this morning and to benefit from it. God, that we would see in your word a call to go on to maturity, to not be content with remaining where we're at. God, I pray that you would help us not to be dull of hearing but that instead we would become those who can teach others and tell others about the foundational truths of the Christian faith that we've been blessed to hear. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. And that we never get beyond needing to hear about it again and again and again as believers. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So today, in our passage, we're finishing up chapter 5, and we're starting in chapter 3. And so we get to verse 3, and we're really kind of throwing the brakes on, because the very next thing that comes in chapter 6 is is a pretty, uh, it's not really a dicey passage, it's a debated passage, because it's one of the most significant warnings we have in the New Testament about our salvation, and the fact that it... uh, might not be our salvation. And so we're going to talk about that next week. But in some ways, this feels like the moment where, uh, you know, the infant is sucking in air and they're about to scream. And like, that's where we're at. So we're at the sucking air portion. Next week is the scream. We're like, that's the main event in this passage. But I want us to stop here this morning because I think there's some stuff here that we really need to hear and it serves as the foundation for what's coming next. And so the main point for us this morning, what the author of Hebrews is telling us, what he's calling us to do is to resist dullness and to press on toward maturity by the grace of God. That's what we're called to do. That's what we should leave here resolved to do because of what we hear in this passage, to resist dullness and press on toward maturity by the grace of God. So we start in verse 11. Well, the first thing he says is about this, we have much to say. What he's talking about here is what we were talking about the last time we were in Hebrews. When we read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, he was talking about the high priesthood of Christ and how he's not a high priest like the high priest in the Old Testament, but he's a different kind of high priest. And I said, he's going to be talking about that all the way to chapter 10. 
Well, he is, but right now he's taking a break. He's saying, I want to keep talking about this. I want to say more about Jesus' priesthood, but instead I have to stop and talk about this other thing because of where you're at. So that's what he's saying. I want to say more about the high priesthood, but I can't right now. He's going to take a break till chapter 7 and instead talk about where these people are at and the warning they need to hear. So the first thing he says is that it's hard to explain. It's hard to explain these deeper concepts since you have become dull of hearing. So he can't go on and talk about what he wants to talk about to them because they're, they're dull of hearing. And here I want to point out, and we're going to see this again and again as we go through this passage, but that dullness of hearing, it's not a criticism or a critique or a judgment of their ability to hear. It's a criticism of their effort, their willingness. So these people aren't dull in the sense that they're just dumb and they can't grasp these deep theological truths. They're dull in that they don't want to. They don't have the desire to grow in the knowledge of God. And so that's what he's pointing out. That's what he's criticizing them for. And if you're here this morning and you're in that place, that's what he's criticizing you for. So it's not a, a conversation about their intelligence level. It's about their willingness. So that's what we should keep in mind as we work through this. This is what it means when they're dull of hearing. He's going to explain this in the rest of the passage. First thing he says in verse 12 is, For by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again. These people, his audience, are people that should be teachers. All of them. He's saying all of you, the people that are in this church that he's writing to, should be, by the time of their faith that they're in now, should be teachers. And this, I think, if we're you know, thinking about what the rest of Scripture says as we're reading this, should cause a question to pop up in our minds. Does it? Does this make you think of any other passages that this might contradict? James 3.1 Not many of you should be teachers because those who teach will be judged with a stricter judgment. So James says to his church, not many of you should be teachers, but the author of Hebrews says to his church, all of you should be teachers by now, but you're not. I think the difference here is, number one, James is writing to a different church than the author of Hebrews is writing to, so there's two different audiences. The other thing is what James is talking about is the office of an elder or pastor or uh, shepherd and that role of teaching. He's talking about this kind of teaching. He's saying not many people should do this because those who do will be judged with a stricter judgment. Then he goes on to talk about all the sins of the tongue. And when we went through James, what we saw there is that what James is talking about is that when you do this, when you put yourself in a position like this, you talk more about the things of God. You say more words about the things of God. And the more you do that, the more prone you are towards error and sin. And so he's saying not many people should desire to do that because those who do will be judged with stricter judgment. So that's what James is talking about. The author of Hebrews doesn't seem to be talking about this kind of teaching. He's talking about just basic communication of information to someone else. He's saying, all of you, by this time in your faith, should be able to teach the foundational truths of the Christian faith to someone else. You should be able to open your mouth and tell the story of who God is and what He's done for you. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, by this time you ought to be teachers. You don't need someone to teach you again. So I think that's the difference between those two passages. They're talking about two different kinds of teaching. The author of Hebrews says what they should be able to teach are what he calls the basic principles of the oracles of God. 
The basic principles of the oracles of God. That's a fancy way to say the foundational truths of the Christian faith. And he's going to give us a list of some of those things in the first part of chapter 6. He's going to talk about the resurrection, the judgment. He's going to talk about repenting of sin. He's going to talk about placing faith in God. He's going to talk about the basic things of the faith. I don't think that's an exhaustive list. He's just saying, by this time, you should know the core truths of your faith. You shouldn't need someone to teach you about them again and again and again. He says that these people should be able to do so. They shouldn't need someone to teach them the realities of the gospel again. And as a church, this should cause us the question. Because our entire philosophy of ministry is that during this time, what we need to hear is the gospel. We need to hear the realities of who Jesus is and what he's done taught from every passage in the Bible. Whether it's looking forward to who he, is, who he will be and what he will do, or whether it's looking back on what he has done. That's what our philosophy of teaching is here. So every time somebody gets up here, what we want them to say is how this passage teaches us more about who God is and what he's done for us. And if they don't do that, when we give them feedback, that's going to be part of their feedback. And so as we're reading something like this, where someone says, hey, you shouldn't need to hear these things again and again, it should cause us to wonder, is our philosophy of teaching wrong? Like, are we neglecting the deeper things? I think the answer is in that illustration I gave at the beginning about parenting. Right? My parent or my kids need, unfortunately, to hear again and again and again that they need to sit up and eat over their plates instead of scattering food all over the floor. And we've told them that many times. And when we tell them it again, we say, we've, we've talked about this. Why don't you know this yet? And at some point, Lord willing, they'll get it. And we won't need to tell them that again. But when it comes to me as a dad telling them that I love them and that I'm proud of them and that our daughters are beautiful, that's not something that I think, Dinah, when you were born on December 16, 2008, I told you I love you. So anytime you wonder whether or not I love you, you just remember December 16th, 2008, Dad told me he loved me. I don't need to hear it again. I've learned it already. Right? That's crazy. We need to hear those things again and again and again. But there are other things that we should learn and know so that we can teach them to other people. And I think that that is how we reconcile those things. We need to hear every day, multiple times throughout the day, the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. But we should also be at a place where we know that information and can communicate it to someone else. We should know about the Trinity and about justification, about sanctification, about the judgment, about all these big theological concepts that maybe we're not that familiar with, but we should be familiar with these things. We should be learning these things so that we can teach them to other people. We shouldn't need someone to teach us again and again the core truths of the faith. We should be able to do that for others. He's going to explain more about this. But real quick, before we go on, I'm saying that this is something we should be able to do. And So what if you're here this morning and you're like, I can't. I can't share the gospel with someone. I can't tell someone what 
you know, it means that I'm adopted as a son and daughter of God. I can't tell someone about the Trinity and about how the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all God and yet they're different. What if you're in that place? I would say a few things to you. The first thing is recognize and remember that the criticism here is not about ability. It's not about intelligence level or knowledge level. It's about willingness to learn. Willingness to grow. And so if you're someone who can't, you need to think and consider and ask the Holy Spirit to search you out. Can I not do this because I don't want to? Because I'm unwilling to? Because I'm lazy? Or is it because I just haven't learned it yet? Because those are two very different things. One thing you need to repent of and ask God to give you the desire so that you do want to grow in these things. The other side, if you just haven't learned it yet, start learning. Study the Word. Read good books that will teach you these things. Surround yourself with other Christians who are probably in this body who can help you learn these things. Right? This is why the church exists. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so that's what we're here for. And so, I think we could walk away from this passage with one of two conclusions. Either, all right, I can teach these things, so I don't need to do anything. Or we could walk away with it with, I can't teach these things, I'm the worst person ever, how am I ever going to get here? And what we need to remember is that we, we never arrive on this issue. There's no end point as a destination for growing in the knowledge of God. And so whether you're someone who is just starting to grow in your knowledge or whether you're someone who's been studying for years and years and years and years and years, we all still need to grow. And so there's no shame for us to say, I want to grow in my knowledge of God because that should be something all of us say. And so if you're someone who can't teach these things, you don't need to feel shame, you don't need to feel guilt, you need to... If you don't want to do it, repent of that. Ask God to give you the desire and then start learning. And we all should be doing that anyway, so it should be really easy for us to do it together. And just to, I don't know, encourage you if you feel like you're someone who can't teach these things. Just the other day, we were driving back from, I think it was Aldi, and I maybe have told some of you the story individually, but we're in the car it's me and Dinah. Dinah's in the back seat. She's uh, seven. And, you know, she's not a believer yet, but we've been teaching her some of these things, and she's learning some of these things so that she's starting to use them against me. I'm driving. There's a car in front of me who is maybe not as motivated to drive home as I am. <laughs> and I, you know, said, I think I either said they were, they were stupid or they were dumb. I apologize, parents, if those words offend you. But I said one of those two things. This person, oh, they're just, you know, they're so dumb. Just drive your car. Just drive your car. And Dinah was in the back seat, and she was like, Dad, you do dumb things too. <laughs> she was like, so sometimes. She said sometimes. Uh, she was like, so you shouldn't be mad at them for doing what you do sometimes. And like, the Lord used that in a gospel way for me to think she's exactly right. 
Like there are times when I'm driving places where I'm not in a hurry. There are times when I drive like an idiot. There are times when I frustrate people. So how can I be mad at this person in front of me when I'm it to other people? And like, she's seven. And the Lord used her to teach me more about how the gospel applied to the current situation I was in. And so don't, don't feel like you're someone who can't do this. Because you can. And the Lord will use you if you put forth the effort by His grace. These people need to be taught again. He's going to illustrate his point in the rest of chapter 5 by talking about milk and solid food. He says, you need milk, the people that he's writing to, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So kids, infants drink milk. They can't eat solid food. But, verse 14, solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Again, recognize that the distinction here, the contrast is between those who put forth the effort and those who don't. Not those who have the ability and those who don't. It's those who are skilled in the work of righteousness. They train themselves. They have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. That's what the issue is here. It's not ability, but effort. So he says, this is who the mature are. So if you've ever wanted a definition of Christian maturity, he gives us one in verse 14. Solid food is for the mature. The mature are those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and from evil. So if anyone asks you what is maturity, maturity is training your powers of discernment by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Right? Easy. Except not, because that's a confusing statement. So what does he mean? Powers of discernment. Our discernment is the ability to make good moral decisions. Right? A good moral decision is a decision that honors God and does what he says is right. So it's distinguishing from good from evil. So he kind of uses the same words twice in this statement to talk about what maturity is. It's distinguishing between good and evil. It's making decisions which are morally good. So that's what Christian maturity is about. And he says that this happens by constant practice. We have our powers of discernment trained by constant practice. And this word here, and in the ESV is constant practice, it has a kind of a weird range of meaning. It means practice, it means exercise, and it also just means maturity. And this week I was really confused by that. I was like, how can the word mean like something that gets us to maturity and maturity also? Seems like two totally different things. And then I realized that I was thinking about maturity, I don't know, poorly, because I was thinking about it from a kind of Dan centered way. And I'm somebody that's, I think, is mature, but also isn't mature. So we were at a wedding not too long ago, and at the reception, the DJ said, and his, he was talking about God, and he said, you know, God is number one, and everybody else is number two. And I got the giggles because he said number two. I'm like, I'm almost 35. And I think I'm mature, but I also laugh when a guy says number two. And so like I was thinking about that and I was like, how do I explain Christian maturity when I think about it this way? And then I started thinking about another way maturity is used, which is uh, when we talk about a savings bond right here. This is a $50 savings bond that was given to me in June of 2004. And don't 
you know, be misled, even though it says $50 on here, this sucker is only worth like 32 right now. It was only worth 25 when I got it in 2004. I was really excited, and I was like, wait a second, that's a savings bond. I'll have $50 in about 30 years. I'm not saying don't give saving bonds as gifts. If you do that, that's awesome. What I am saying is that the way maturity works with these is they continue to grow. And then at some point, they have matured. So in, uh, I think it's 2028 maybe? I'm not sure exactly when it is. I looked it up this morning. This is worth $32. It will be worth $50 like 12 years from now. At that point, it will have matured. It's worth what it's supposed to be worth. It's supposed to, worth, it's supposed to be worth $50. So this will be a mature savings bond then. And what that means for it is that it's able to serve its purpose in the world. But if I don't cash it in, what happens? No. No. It keeps growing. If I was given this savings bond when I was born, it would be worth like $132 now, even though it just says 50 on it. So it matures once it reaches its full value, but then it keeps growing, bonus value. And I think that Christian maturity is, is something like that. Obviously, the analogy breaks down, but we get to a place where we are mature as Christians. We're serving the purpose God has for us in the world. We understand the gospel. We're able to teach it and communicate it to others. We're those who are teachers, like the author of Hebrews calls us to. And yet, that doesn't mean we're done. We're still growing. We're still called to press on to more and more and more maturity. And so it's not like immature versus mature. It's immature versus maturing. And so we get to a place where we are mature and we're maturing. And that's what we're called to do. When we do that, we're fulfilling the purpose He has for us. And so that's, I think, how we should think about Christian maturity. It's not as if we're just continually working, trying to get to this place where we'll finally be mature and we can say, I'm a mature believer. We get to a place, I think, pretty early on in our Christian life where we are mature. And yet we still are called to grow more and more and more and more because we're always being conformed in the image of Christ. And we never get there, this side of heaven. The hope is that we will one day. But we're all called to press on to maturity. Turns the corner in chapter 6. Therefore, because of this reality, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So he gives them an example of what he means by the elementary doctrine of Christ. And he gives them three pairs right here. The first pair is a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He's saying this is something that we should be past if we're mature believers. And when he's talking about laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, I don't think he's saying, you know, once we get to maturity, that we no longer need to repent of our sins and trust in God. Right? That's something that we always need to do throughout the Christian life. What he seems to be talking about here is those who might think that they need to continually kind of be converted again and again and again. As if, you know, like you show up week after week and say, you know, I just don't know if it took last week. And so, God, I repent of all my sin and I trust in you for salvation. 
And the next week you show up and you say, God, I don't know if I'm really saved or not, so I repent of all my sin and I trust you for salvation. You just keep doing that again and again and again and again. That's what he's talking about here. That's something that we should leave behind and instead have faith that God has really saved us by grace through faith and move on towards maturity. It doesn't mean that we no longer need to repent. It doesn't mean that we stop trusting in God. We keep doing both of those things, but we believe that he actually has saved us. The next pair he gives us is instruction about washings and the laying on of hands. Here he's talking about two very basic practices of the Christian life. He's talking about baptism and he's talking about prayer. He's just doing it in a kind of poetic way. And what he's probably talking about for this audience is the difference between Christian baptism and Christian prayer and Jewish baptism and Jewish prayer. How they're different for those who have come out of the Jewish faith. So he's saying, by this point, they should already know what baptism is, what it represents. They should already know what prayer is, how to do it, how to tell other people to do it. So he's saying they should be past these things. Baptism is something that happens really early in the Christian life. And so all of us as believers should have been baptized by now. And we should, because we've been baptized, know what it means, know what it represents, and be able to tell that to other people who are new in their faith who need to be baptized. Same thing with prayer. We should be able to tell people how to pray. We should be able to show them how to pray. We should be able to talk to them about what prayer is and you know, what it represents and the, the ways in which we benefit in prayer because of what Christ has done for us. The third pair is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. The last one sounds you know, kind of scary and ominous and not something we want to talk about with people, but they're two core central beliefs of the Christian faith. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. Right? If he wasn't raised, Paul says, then we've believed in vain. Like Our salvation doesn't exist if Christ wasn't raised. And because Christ has been raised, we too will be raised. And when we're raised, we will experience judgment at the end. The final judgment. We'll either be judged on the basis of who Christ is and what he's done for us and then inherit the new heavens and the new earth or we'll be judged on the basis of our own works and inherit eternal punishment. These are things we as Christians should be familiar with and be able to talk to other people about. So he's saying that these are things that these people by now should have done. They should resist dullness. They should press on to maturity. They should be able to teach these things to other people. And we do this by the grace of God. Look at verse 3 in chapter 6. This is really the most important verse in the passage, even though it comes last. He says, In this, meaning pressing on to maturity, we will do if God permits. We will press on to maturity if God permits. What we see here is the balance, the, the tension in Scripture between God's sovereignty, His complete control over everything and everyone, and our responsibility as human beings. Right? He saves us. He redeems us. He is saving us. He has adopted us as sons and daughters. He permits us and causes us and enables us to grow on towards maturity. And at the same time, we are absolutely responsible for walking in the salvation that He has purchased for us. Right? He's prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in. 
We place our faith. We obey. We pursue holiness. We press on toward maturity. And yet, He permits all of that. So there's a balance between Him in control and us doing it. And this whole passage, the emphasis is kind of held together between Him permitting it and us putting forth the effort. Because it's not criticizing this audience for their ability. It's for their unwillingness. So he's calling them to, by God's permission, by his grace, uh, to press on toward maturity. That's what he's calling us to this morning. So today, you're probably in one of three spots. You're here this morning and you're not a believer. And so really, this doesn't apply. Uh, what you need is for God to permit you to place your faith in Christ. Like We only grow towards maturity by the grace of God. And we can only have faith and salvation by the grace of God. And so if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ, I would encourage you to do that today. I would encourage you to ask somebody that's here, somebody that you came with, somebody that you know that knows about these things, to teach you about them so that you can believe them and place your faith in Christ and then be one of those who teaches them to other people. If you're here this morning, you are a believer. You're either in that, I can teach these things, I can't teach these things. But really, the answer is the same. We press on towards maturity. That's what we're all called to do, whether we've been a Christian for five minutes or five years or 50 years. We're still called to press on to maturity and we still need God's grace to do that. So I would encourage you today to put forth the effort to do that. And just kind of a side note, if you're someone who says, I want to be able to teach these things, but I just can't, talk to someone about it. That's why we're here. That's why we have leaders in place in the church. That's why we have a church that's about equipping leaders, because we want people to be able to do these things. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, if you haven't been to BC before, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. We do that because, as I said during the sermon, we believe we need as many reminders as possible of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. The Lord's Supper is one of those reminders. It reminds us that his body was broken and his blood was shed for us and for our sins. Because that's what it represents, we believe that it's something that only Christians should participate in. You don't have to be a member of this church you don't even have to attend this church. If you're here and you're a believer, we welcome you to celebrate Jesus' death with us. The way it works here is there's a table set up over there that has juice and uh, I believe there are oyster crackers laid out. We just take some time after I pray to prepare your heart to take the Lord's Supper, to repent of any sin you might need to repent of. And then whenever you're ready, come through the line, take the Lord's Supper and return to your seats so it can be a time of worship for everyone. Let's pray. Father, I pray that because of your grace that you would permit us both as individuals and as a church to be those who press on toward maturity. God, I pray that you would stir our affections and our desires to be those who want to. And that by your grace, we would put forth the effort to do so. God, I pray that today that conversations would happen. That people who aren't at a place where they can teach these things to others would start the process of getting to that place. 
And I pray that we would talk together about your word and about how we need to grow in our understanding of different parts of it. And that as a church, we would be mutually encouraging to one another in that. Father, I pray now that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that you would just send your spirit to work in us, to do the work that only you can do in our hearts, to point out the ways in which we fall short, and that also you would remind us by your spirit that Christ measures up, and he stood in our place and paid for our sin. And because of that, we can be your children. We can worship you together together.